Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Well, how long ago does this morning feel like? <laughs> Has it only been less than 12 hours? Can you believe it? It's amazing, isn't it? How quickly a day goes by out in the world, in our life, versus how long a day can seem when you take away all of the stimulation and the distractions and the busyness. So the, uh, the theme or the title for this retreat that we've all come to is Cultivating Inner Freedom. What is inner freedom? Usually we think of, when we think of freedom, we think of being able to do what we want, have things the way we want them to be. That's uh, some people might call that outer freedom. Other people might call it something else. Uh, but inner freedom is something quite different. Inner freedom is not dependent on the external conditions of our environment. If it were, it wouldn't actually be freedom. When I uh, first started practicing meditation, I was traveling in India after a few months of practice and um, some very deep states had opened up and I was having some insight into the practice and I was in a very beautiful peaceful uh, setting in western India in Rajasthan kind of up on this um, uh, sort of top of a ruins of an old structure with a lookout over the city and it was the end of the day, sunset. Really beautiful. The sun shining off of the sandstone buildings and kind of the din of the city down below. And I was just sitting, leaning on this stone fence, my back supported by the rocks, just looking out, enjoying the quiet, enjoying uh, being present. And a small group of tourists uh, came up uh, you know, the path up to this lookout also. And they're chatting away and talking. And um, one, of the, one of the folks in the party, you know, saw me sitting there by myself quietly and, and kind of came up and smiled and, you know, was joking and said, oh, I'm so sorry to, dis so sorry to disturb your peace. And without even thinking about it, I just looked at her and I said, if it could be disturbed, what kind of peace is it? Right? So inner freedom is a, is a peace that's not dependent on external conditions. It's not dependent on the meal being on time or having the food that we like 
or having the person sit next to us in the hall that we prefer, or, you know, whatever it is. That's just called our preferences. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is one of the most important factors on this path to inner freedom that opens the doorway and uh, carries us along all the way through to the end of this path. And where, and where it leads, where it takes us, the direction or the goal of the path. And so that quality <coughs> is mindfulness. Very uh, kind of overused word these days. Everything is mindful, mindful golf, mindful business. <coughs> you know, just slap mindful on it and people will buy it. So what is mindfulness? Uh, the, first, the first thing to recognize about mindfulness is that it's innate. It's something we all have. It's not something you need to produce or create. We all have a certain degree of mindfulness. If we didn't, we wouldn't be able to get through the day. One of my first meditation teachers uh, was fond of saying, mindfulness is the only way to be free. Mindfulness is the only way to be free. If what we're interested in is understanding the way this heart and mind works and releasing ourselves from the ways that we get stuck and caught and habitually react to life, to life which is not in our control, if we're interested in understanding that relationship and transforming it, we need to be able to, to be present. We need to be able to know what's happening, to see clearly. And mindfulness moves us in that direction. It's the first step. So the Buddha talked about mindfulness as he called it one of the leaders of mental qualities. It's like the first one or the gate. It opens the door to all of the other wholesome qualities of mind that we can cultivate on this path. Qualities like patience, kindness, generosity, honesty, integrity, determination, energy, courage. Mind you've heard of the gateway drug. Mindfulness is like a, a gateway spiritual quality. It leads to all the other ones. One of, the, one of the words that's translated as mindfulness from the Pali is upamada, upamada, which uh, also means carefulness or heedfulness. Sometimes it's translated. The quality of really, really paying close attention and being careful with things. The Buddha said, one who is heedless lives as though dead. One who is heedful, heedfulness is the, sorry, heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. One who is heedless lives as though already dead. What does this mean? Heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Okay. 
heavy statement. Heedlessness leads to death. That's also pretty, pretty heavy statements, right? Uh, and I don't think he just means, you know, if you're not paying attention, you'll get in a car accident and die, although that's quite clear. I was, uh, I was talking to my dad just a couple nights ago. He's in his mid-70s, and he grew up in Israel uh, when it was still Palestine, born in 41. And uh, his family was very poor growing up, uh, lived in a shack, just him and his dad and his two brothers and, and he. And um, he was, he's the oldest, so um, it was very difficult for the family to feed all of them. Being, being so poor and having so little. Uh, he raised chickens and his mom, you know, grew vegetables. His dad ran a little newspaper and uh, candy kiosk in town. But as soon as he was old enough to leave home, they sent him off to the kibbutz to go work and be supported by the kibbutz. This is about 12 years old, maybe 13 years old, left home. And so we were talking the other night, and he was telling me, we were driving, driving back to his house from somewhere and uh, looking out over the city from, uh, from Montclair. It's a really nice view of the city. So looking at the view, and he was saying, you know, when I was a kid, when I got to the kibbutz, the room I was staying in was up on a hill. And when I got there, every, and there was the most beautiful sunsets over the hills and all of the colors. And he said, every evening, I would just stand in my room and watch the sunset when I first got there. He said, and then after a few months, one day I, I was in my room kind of just doing stuff. And all of a sudden I looked up and I saw the sunset out the window and realized that I hadn't watched the sunset in months. And he said, it always bothered me. Why did I stop noticing it? Why did I stop noticing it? I think this is part of what the Buddha meant when he said that heedlessness leads to death. When we're not mindful, we're sleepwalking through life. We're living as though we were dead. We're not actually aware or awake. We're seeing the reality of our life. And when we are mindful, when we are heedful, it opens the doors to touching something deeper than the small sense of our, our personality, than the limited perspective that we have of, of, of being someone who was born and who will die, who is moving through time. That's one experience of what it is to be alive, but it's not the only experience. There's something timeless that is available and deeply a part of each of us that we can discover and know directly for ourselves. And it's through paying attention and being here in deeper and deeper ways that our mind can open to touch that uh, quality of life that, that goes beyond the personal sense of self and beyond time, 
So part of our retreat is just having the conditions and the practice to slow down and to keep coming back again and again to being here, to cultivate this quality of of heedfulness, of carefulness, of mindfulness, of being awake to our life. And this is one of the main benefits of mindfulness, is that it gives us back our life from the sense of being on automatic or sleepwalking. And I mean, this happens in quite ordinary ways, you know. Uh, You can't remember where you put something a minute ago, or you walk into a room and you go, wait, why did I come in here? You know that one, right? It's a moment of heedlessness. The mind just spaces out. Or what's even more frightening sometimes is you drive from home to work or vice versa, and then you, you pull into the driveway and you go, oh my God, I have no idea how I got here, right? We're not alive. We're not actually awake. We're not awake to our life. We're asleep. So mindfulness literally, the word in Pali, sati, literally means to remember. So part of mindfulness is that we're remembering to be here which is what I was talking about before in the meditation itself. Every time we wake up from a daydream, that waking up, that remembering, oh yeah, right, I'm meditating, is part of mindfulness. It's remembering to remember. It also has that sense of, in English, the word remember literally means to put back together, right? A a member, like a part, to remember is to reassemble. And so mindfulness also has that sense of, of remembering, reassembling ourselves. This quality of remembering uh, is also talked about as, as bearing something in mind. So one of the definitions in the texts uh, is when it says one is mindful, it means that one remembers what one learned or heard long ago and bears it in mind. So to be mindful of something also just means to, to, to understand, to remember what we've learned and to bear it in mind, to have it accessible. So the teachings that I'll be offering all week long, you know, there's qualities of curiosity and kindness and patience that I was emphasizing, to remember that, to bear it in mind. So as you're going through your walking or as you're meditating on a sitting, something difficult comes up, you might remember, oh yeah, kindness, bearing that in mind is an aspect of mindfulness. It also means just bearing a certain theme in mind. So mindfulness of breath, means that we're remembering the breath. Mindfulness of sound means that we're, we are remembering, we are bearing in mind, we're, we are trying to cultivate a continuous awareness of sound. Mindfulness of walking, you get the idea. It's the walking, the sensations that we are bearing in mind and remembering. The most basic definition of mindfulness is knowing what's happening. 
This is one of the definitions. This is a definition one of <clears throat> one of my first meditation teachers used to use. Mindfulness means knowing what's happening. So what's happening? <clears throat> one of the um, one of the divisions is just knowing that there's physical experience and mental experience. So there's the there's the realm of our physical senses, sight, smell, taste, touch, and sound. And then there's the there's the mental realm of thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptions, memories. So this is one basic division: mental and physical. Another another division of saying, well, what are we what are we knowing that's happening? Uh, is uh, the four foundations of mindfulness. Many of you are probably familiar with this template. If not, I'll just briefly mention it. But this is this will be what's <clears throat> kind of providing the structure to a certain degree for the meditation instructions that I'm giving. So the first. Uh, kind of domain that we pay attention to with mindfulness is the body, which includes our breathing and sensations and movement, all of the various physical activities moving around during the day. Then there's what's called the, the feeling tone of, of an experience. This is the aspect of any experience, physical or mental, that's either agreeable, disagreeable, or in the middle. It's neither disagreeable nor agreeable. So if you consider any sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, or thought has a certain kind of a flavor to it. It tastes pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And this is an aspect of our experience that we can notice. We can know what's happening. We can notice if a sound or a smell or a taste or a thought is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, we can be aware of that. Then there's everything that happens in the mind. Thoughts, emotions, perceptions, memories. It's another domain that we can be mindful of. And then the last domain are certain particular qualities of mind that have special significance on the path to awakening, which I'll be talking about uh, over the course of the week. The hindrances which get in the way of meditating and waking up, and the various factors of enlightenment which support the process of waking up, mindfulness being the first of those. Some of you know that uh, some of the work I do is with, uh, with kids teaching mindfulness to kids or to more so these days to educators who work with kids. These are a few, uh, <coughs> a few quotes from elementary school students about mindfulness, their experience of it. 
I felt very peaceful when he rang the bell. I felt like I was floating through space and drinking a glass of water when I was really thirsty. That's so beautiful. There's a teaching in the Zen tradition that um, painted rice cakes can't quench your hunger. It's like trying to eat a painted rice cake. This is what we do in life. We try to eat painted rice cakes. We chase after figments of our imagination. A job, an idea, a role, a status. We live in the world of our thoughts and our concepts rather than the world of experience. So meditation is about dropping below the realm of thoughts and ideas and concepts, the world of painted rice cakes, into the actual world of our direct experience of warmth and coolness, of soft and smooth and hard, moving from the realm of early or late or why or should be to thinking, tightness, unpleasant, just the direct momentary felt experience of life. The mindfulness teacher says that our minds are like puppies. When they stray, we need to pull them back gently. But sometimes the puppy gets free from its leash and you have to chase it, which is hard because it's really fast. (laughs) Anybody have that experience today? So this mind, it's said this mind is fickle, like a fish out of water, flipping this way and that all the time. And so our task is to train the mind very gently, very patiently. If you've ever tried to teach something to a child, you know that, uh, or if you've ever been a child, has anyone here ever been a child? (laughs) What's it like to learn from somebody who's impatient, pushy, judgmental, rigid, angry? How well do you learn? How much do you want to learn? Right? What's it like to learn from somebody who's patient, kind, loving, encouraging, lighthearted, engaging, supportive? Did I say encouraging? How is it to learn from someone like that? It's great, right? It's fun. We want to do it. We want to learn. So this is the kind of relationship that we're trying to cultivate in the meditation practice, to be our own teacher. I'm sitting here sharing stuff with you, but each of us is really our own teacher. The things that I'm sharing are just like suggestions. And it's up to each of you to take them in and coach yourself through the meditation all day long, to bear in mind what you've heard and what you've learned. So mindfulness is knowing what's happening. But mindfulness isn't just knowing what's happening. Because all kinds of creatures know what's happening. All kinds of creatures can be in the present moment, but does that mean they're being mindful? 
Mindfulness is a particular kind of knowing. It's a kind of knowing that's balanced. It's a kind of knowing that has wisdom with it. So in the texts, mindfulness is always paired with other qualities, like wisdom and wholeheartedness. Those are two of the ones that are frequently, it's frequently uh, combined with. So mindfulness is a knowing that's curious, open, balanced, and non-reactive. So if there's an unpleasant sensation in my back, just being aware of it isn't necessarily mindfulness. Because if I'm fighting with it and struggling with it and judging it and getting angry at the guy who won't ring the bell and come on already, it must be time. That's not being mindful. It's called aversion. It's called not liking. Suzuki Roshi talked about mindfulness as a soft, Readiness, a soft readiness. That, that word readiness, when you think about that, it points to something. It points to the, to the reality that we don't know what's coming. That there's an unknown aspect to experience. There's kind of a poise to it. We're ready. We're not quite sure what's going to come next. That's an aspect of mindfulness. We're in touch with the uncertainty of life from moment to moment. We're ready for anything. We don't have a fixed idea about how things should be internally or externally. There's just a readiness. And then soft. A soft readiness. So the softness, it's flexible, it's not rigid, it's not locked into a certain position, wedded to a certain idea or a view of what's supposed to happen or how I'm supposed to be or what or how things are supposed to go. It's soft, it's not pushing or pulling or latching on to things. Mindfulness is about seeing things the way they are rather than the way we want them to be, rather than the way we think they should be. And this is really where we start to discover what inner freedom is, when we begin to see the difference between how things are and how we think they should be. We tend to take our expectations as true. It should be this way, and we believe that. Where? Where does it say that it should be this way? Where does it say that I shouldn't have this illness, or that this relationship shouldn't end, or I should have that job, or I shouldn't have, you know, shouldn't have to deal with this frustration or annoyance? impinging on me. Where is it written? That life should be some way. So the Buddha gave a very potent teaching about this that I'd like to share with you. 
Some of you have probably heard this before. It bears repeating. He was with some of his disciples, or so it's, so it's been recorded. And he asked them, he said, um, what's the difference between me and my disciples who have practiced and really understood these teachings and just your ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill person who's never heard any of this stuff or practiced? What's the difference? And they said, uh, not sure. Would you tell us? So in kind of classic fa fashion, he says, yes, and answers his own question. Um, he says, both, both people, those who have heard these teachings, practiced and understood them, and those who have never heard or practiced these teachings, both people experience unpleasant things in life. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. Okay? In other words, shit happens. Okay? It's just part of life. And we know this. He said, that's like being shot with a dart. And everyone gets shot with this first dart of unpleasant, difficult experiences in life. Unavoidable. If you're born, this is what you sign up for. Things don't go your way. You get stuck with things you don't like. You get parted from things you do like. We get old, we get sick. The people we care about die, we die, right? This is life. It includes all of this and it's unavoidable. So that's the same for everyone. No one escapes that. He said the difference is somebody who hasn't understood or practiced these teachings, when they get hit with that first dart, they beat their breast, they lament, they despair, they say, why me? Why has this happened? This shouldn't have happened. This always happens to me. It should have been another way. How come? Wherefore? Why? And in reacting in this way, they shoot themselves with a second dart. He says, the person who has practiced and understood these teachings doesn't shoot that second dart. So this is one way that suffering in the Buddhist tradition is understood or defined as, as reactivity. It's our habitual, reflexive reactions to life that, gets, that get us wound up, that add so much unnecessary struggle to things that might already be difficult enough. Our fear about the future our regrets and, uh, you know, playing the past over and over again in our minds. Why do we do this? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Why do we stress about it so much? So mindfulness starts to reveal this. Mindfulness starts to help us tease apart what's actually happening, seeing the difference between life and everything else that's extra that we add on top. 
the anxiety, the restlessness, the despair, the confusion, the frustration, the blame, the self-disparaging, the not good enough, the should be, the shouldn't be, all of that, all of those second and third and fourth arrows. And you don't have to look very far. Close your eyes for five minutes and watch what happens. What happens? The mind wanders, and, and so what? The mind wandered. What's the next thing? Is there judgment? Is there blame? Is there, I'm not good enough? I'll never be able to? Reactivity, second arrow. So the more clearly we see this process, see the way things are rather than the way we think they should be, the more clearly we start to see that difference, the less bound we are to keep repeating these patterns. The more freedom we have to be with things the way they are without the mind flipping out. So the path here is moment-to-moment attention to our direct experience. So one aspect of mindfulness is bare attention. It means that we're just being with the experience the way it is instead of all of the other things we add on top. Bear attention to the experience, non-conceptually, directly. So what's it like to feel a breath without the idea of breathing? What's it like to hear a sound without the label chair, door, water? So much of our reactivity comes from the labels, the ideas of the experience. That sound shouldn't be happening. That's a bad sound versus the water or the wind. Those are okay sounds. Those are natural sounds. This sound doesn't belong. Therefore, and then the mind is suffering, reacting, going all the way down, down that, uh, down that slippery slide. What's it like to feel the sensations in your hand without the idea or the picture in your mind of hand. (coughs) So mindfulness is bringing our attention very deeply, very closely to our experience, trying to get dropped beneath this this layer of of stories and concepts to really taste life, to let it touch you intimately. And that requires a real great humility. We have to be willing, we have to be humble enough to be willing to not know, to be mindful. If you think you know what a breath feels like, you're not going to learn anything. If you think you know what it feels like to walk, you're not going to learn anything. Every moment is fresh. Every moment is new. It's never happened before. The idea that you know what's, that what's going to happen or the idea that, you, that we know what this is, is a memory. 
is a very useful function of mind. None of us would be able to get dressed, let alone speak or get to work, if we didn't have memory structuring our reality. But the problem is when it takes over and we lose touch with the immediacy of experience, the capacity to actually touch life directly. And as I was saying, that takes a lot of humility, the willingness to not know. I want to share with you a little mnemonic that um, another one of my teachers, Michelle McDonald's, uh, created to uh, help illuminate some of the different facets of mindfulness, some of the different aspects of mindfulness that you can use in your meditation practice, in your sitting, in your walking, to just kind of remember and reflect on, am I being mindful? Not just knowing what's happening, but in this particular way of being balanced and clear. So some of you have heard or are familiar with this list. It's called RAIN, R-A-I-N. So the R is for recognition. The A is for acceptance. The I is for interest. And the N is for non-identification. And I'll say a little bit more about each of these. (coughs) So recognition is just that sense, that initial sense of knowing what's happening. (coughs) Just being aware. Oh, this is hearing. Or, oh, that's thinking. Or, oh, this is fear just being aware of what's happening. And this is like 50% of the game. Because if we don't actually recognize what's happening, then we can't do anything. There has to be enough awareness to just know, to to just recognize what's occurring in the moment. And really, we can boil it all down to say there are only two things that are ever happening in the meditation practice. We're either here or we're not. We're either aware or we're lost. And when we're lost, we're gone, we're lost. We don't have a choice, right? So how we relate to that, how we relate to that makes all of the difference in how the practice unfolds. We have this mistaken belief that we're in control. Or is it just me? (laughs) Right? That we sit down and we say, pay attention to the breath, that the mind will obey and pay attention to the breath. And then when it doesn't, we get frustrated and angry and upset and disappointed and annoyed. But we're not in control. That's all that we're seeing is that we're not in control. So the way that we relate to that is very important. The more we judge it and hate it and blame ourselves, the more we give it power. The more we give that, that 
fogged out, lost, <coughs> diluted quality of the mind power, the more we resist it and fight it and hate it. The more we can be easy with it and just honor it as a natural part of life. We're here, we're not. We're here, we're not. It's night, it's day. We breathe in, we breathe out. That's the way these things go. The more we can just allow that rhythm to shift with some ease and some kindness, the deeper you will go in the meditation practice. I can't emphasize this enough. When you check out, it's because you need to check out. Something inside needs a break. It's hard to be here. Have you noticed? Why do you think we're so busy all the time? Because it's hard to be aware. We feel a lot. It's intense to be alive. Have you noticed how reactive you get over like really silly things? Just even being here for like eight hours? Why are they doing that? You know, or whatever it is. Or how tired we get or how restless we get. Of course we want to disappear into a screen. Because when we don't, when we haven't trained the mind to stay balanced with unpleasant and pleasant, when we haven't cultivated the inner resilience, when we don't have mindfulness and wisdom and concentration and patience and compassion, when we don't have those strengths really well cultivated to protect the heart, it's raw to be exposed to a world that's out of our control with changing pleasant and unpleasant sensations all day long. It's rough. So we need a break. We need to step out if we don't have mindfulness and compassion and wisdom. So when you know, when the mind goes out, don't worry about it. Really, learn to respect it. Learn to honor that. Oh, it's fine. It's like that little child that you're trying to explain something to or teach them something. When they start playing with another toy, do you beat them up and get angry at them? No, you say, oh, that's so great. You want to play. Let's play for a moment. Okay, great. Now let's come back and learn some more of this. Right? You work with the child. You follow it. So... Recognition, this R of mindful of rain and mindfulness. When we don't recognize what's happening, that's okay. It's part of the practice. Let it come and let it go. Just like the night and the day, the in-breath and the out-breath. The A is for acceptance. I've already started talking about this a little bit. It's one thing to be aware of what's happening. It's another thing to accept it, to recognize, yeah, this is happening. <laughs> I might not like it, or I might want it to stay longer than it will, but this is the truth in this moment. This is what's happening. So can there be some acceptance? Acceptance doesn't mean condoning. It doesn't mean condoning what's happening in the world or condoning harm to ourselves or others. 
the kind of acceptance we talk about in contemplative practice is a moment-to-moment acceptance of the direct experience. We're not talking about um, interfacing with uh, social institutions or patterns in relationship. There's great harm that can be done, as we all know. And it's important for us to respond to that with wisdom and compassion and take action and speak up when we need to. The kind of acceptance that we're talking about is a balanced non-reactivity to the truth of the moment that allows us to respond with more wisdom. We'll try everything before we'll be mindful of something. Mindfulness is often the last resort. We'll shift the posture, we'll try having a cup of coffee, we'll take a walk, and then after like three hours when we're still sleepy, we'll realize, well, I guess I could try to be mindful of it. And that's fine. But when we get to that point where we're finally willing to accept it as it is and say, okay, this is what's happening. Now we're starting to approach what it is to be mindful, to really just accept something and be willing to meet it. So the I is for interest. And this is where we start getting, uh, the meditation practice starts getting more compelling. To actually be interested in in an experience. What's it like to be interested in knee pain? What's it like to be interested in sounds coming from the kitchen that the mind labels as noise? That's a concept, noise. Sound from the kitchen is also a concept. What's it like to be interested in just the pure music of hearing? Again, this non-conceptual layer of experience. One of my favorite definitions of mindfulness is the intention to understand rather than to judge. The intention to understand rather than to judge. And so watch this in your own practice, how the mind is always trying to control and judge or resist experience, pushing and pulling and judging right and wrong and good and bad and like it and don't like it. Mindfulness is just the intention to understand experience, to just, what is this? Not is it right or wrong, do I like it or not like it, or good or bad, or should or shouldn't, but just what is it? Can I come close to it? Can I be interested in it? And finally, the I, uh, the N, in rain is for non-identification. And this is the hardest one to get. These aren't a checklist. It's not like you go in order, you know, recognition, acceptance, okay, check, did that, you know, interest. Uh, at any given moment, one of these might be more clear than the other. It's more just like a little mandala or a little kind of like template to uh, remember and, and explore at different times to see, am I being mindful? So the non-identification part is about not taking things so personally. 
not taking our experience so personally, not taking the sounds or the sights or the smells that happen as meaning anything about us or as a personal affront, and ultimately not, not separating ourselves from experience, from life. The sense of being me is, is inherently a, a, a disconnect, a separation from life. So the non-identification is about actually seeing that we're part of a, of a much wider flow of changing experience in nature. And that we don't need to uh, congeal around any of it and make it ourself. The thoughts that come and go through our mind, do you control your thoughts? Can you choose which thoughts to have when? So are they you? Are they who you are? Do you control the sensations in your body? Do we control the emotions that we feel? So why do we, why do we narrow in on any of it and say, this is me, this thought, this sensation, this emotion? That's all just changing. Even this body I think it's said every seven years, all of the cells are new. Or you look at your body now versus 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Is it the same body? Is it me? Is this who I am? So not identifying with things, not taking them personally, not needing to define it as me or not me, but just being interested, just the pure exploration and this is what we're going to be moving into as the days unfold. We gather the attention with the anchor, we stabilize our attention, and then we begin to explore with interest the whole range of human experience, sensations, thoughts, emotions, and feelings. This practice takes a lot of courage. It's not easy, really. So the fact that each of you is still here after one day, good job. Seriously, it's not easy. It's not easy, but it's doable. It's very doable. And I'll tell you why. Because it's only just one moment at a time. Half an hour, you know what that is? It's a thought. That's what that is. Four days, you know what that is? That's a thought. You don't have to be mindful for 45 minutes. In fact, you can't be mindful for 45 minutes. Most of us can't even be mindful for one breath, let alone 45. I'm serious. When you really start to look closely, you see that the mind is, is checking out rapidly all the time. It's with experience, and then there's a thought, and then it's with something else, and then it zones out. All the, the amount of mindfulness that we need to do this practice is just one moment's worth, because that's all we can ever do. <coughs> so you need just enough mindfulness and each one of us here on this retreat has that capacity to be mindful for just one moment. 
just enough mindfulness to be aware just right now for this half breath, for this sound, for this sensation. And then we do it again, and then we do it again. And when you forget and you space out, no problem. It's not in our control. And when you come back, great, celebrate. I want to close with a a quote this is from uh, the uh, cosmologist uh, cosmologist Krauss remember his first name he writes the amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It's really the most poetic thing I know about physics. We are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution, weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars. And the only way they could get into your body is if those stars were kind enough to explode. So who are we? What are we? Don't be so sure that you know. So let's just sit together for a moment. just enough mindfulness, one moment at a time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.